Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Well, well, well. I mean, where do we even start this week's episode, Cass? (laughs) Since the last time we recorded the show, things have changed just a bit in the world. Just a tad. <laughs> Perhaps gone from zero to 60, and here we all are stuck at home. Last week, we mentioned um, in passing that social distancing was in effect, but now everything has closed in the course of this past week. Schools, restaurants, bars, all non-essential businesses here in New York City have been closed, including museums, which is why one thing that I'm thankful for is at least the fact I got to go see this exhibition, which we're going to discuss today. I saw it in person more than once. Yeah, and I am supremely jealous of that mere fact. And you know what? To all of our listeners, we just want you to know that we recognize the exceptionally trying time that is unfolding on a global level. It's kind of changing on a daily basis. You know, and some of us are just now becoming accustomed to working from home. A lot of us also managing our kids who are at home. And also many, many others of us um, out there have lost their entire source of income. Yeah, Cass, as you know, a ton of my friends here in New York work in the hospitality industry and super cool restaurants and nightclub venues. A lot of them are are performers as well. So their very livelihood is banned at the moment. They simply cannot work. And there are so, so many other industries that are deeply affected as all non-essential workers have been ordered to stay at home, depending where you live, of course, you know, throughout the world. Right. And I would just want to say that if you are in a position, please consider donating to, you know, money to your favorite organization, restaurant, performer, bartender, yoga instructor. You know, a lot of these small businesses are selling gift cards to try and get through this time. Um, restaurants are doing curbside pickup, uh, to-go orders, while others have set up, you know, GoFundMe pages to help support their staff. And so, you know, consider that money that you might have spent on a beer or on a dinner during a week, consider donating it to that place or person instead. And, you know, we are all adjusting, but I truly believe that we are stronger together. And when we support each other, even if it's from afar. And we feel it's necessary to acknowledge all of this, of course, but at the same time, April and I really feel a great responsibility to all of our listeners to not linger too much on the subject of coronavirus. You're certainly getting it from all angles these days. You know, as the saying goes, the podcast must go on. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of focusing on the current social disruptions, what we endeavor to do is to, you know, continue to remind everyone twice a week about the beauty of expression, which clothing brings to our world. And today's episode cast is chock full of a wealth of beauty. Beauty hard won, to be certain, but the transcendent kind that I think we could all use a healthy dose of right now. Today, we are pleased to welcome one of our favorite fashion history scholars, Patricia Mears, to the show to chat with us about her exhibition, 
ballerina, fashion's favorite muse, which opened at the museum at FIT this past February. And the museum might currently be closed to visitors, but Cass, that doesn't mean that we have to stop learning from the experts. That's right. Patricia is the deputy director of the museum at FIT, and one of her special interests as a fashion historian is the intersection of dance and fashion. She's also written in detail about modern fashion's innovators in terms of construction techniques, and this includes the work of Madame Gray and the great Isabel Toledo, who passed oh too soon recently. We are thrilled to have Patricia with us today. Patricia, welcome to Dressed. Patricia, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on Dressed. Welcome. Thank you so much, April. I'm really excited to be with you today. Um, Congratulations on your new exhibition. It is truly magical. It's supremely beautiful, I have to say. Um, And I learned a ton from its accompanying catalog, which is called Ballerina, Fashion's Modern Muse, for any of our listeners who want to pop on over to Amazon and pick up a copy. So, For any of our listeners who, like me, may not be ballet aficionados, I'm hoping first we can do a little bit of ballet history, just a little bit. When do we first see the emergence of ballet, and what distinguished it from other types of dance which preceded it? Ballet is quite an old art form. Um, The genesis of what you see today, the basic steps and the positions, were already in place as early as the 1660s. Mm. The first formal school was started in 1661 under the auspices of Louis XIV, who himself was a very accomplished ballet dancer. Oh, wow. Um, It was clearly an aristocratic endeavor, and you see that carried over today, the sort of erect posture, the sort of very formal movement of the body. So in some ways, it is part of that French ancien regime aspect, and we still see it today. But ballet is also a very athletic endeavor. Mm -hmm. So it's marrying these two extremes, if you will, sort of restraint in this kind of technical bravura. And uh, again, that's why I think they call ballet dancers artist athletes. Yeah. Because they merge the two. And then Fast forward, the ballet went from being aristocratic, very classical in its themes, and male-dominated to about the 1820s, 1830s. When women take over, ballet is international, it's much more standardized, and very importantly, the romantic style, the sort of supernatural narrative takes over. And it seems that women artists were better suited to express this new ballet form. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about the life of a professional ballerina um, in the early years of the art form in the 19th century? What was her place in society? Very different from today. The ballerina really sat at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, if you will. There were a few exceptions. Um, and even though there was a flourishing in the 1830s and 40s where there were certainly respectable stars, uh, by and large, these women were very marginalized. Mm-hmm. They were paid very little. And as a result, they were often exploited. Many of them had to turn to prostitution uh, to survive. And we see these beautiful pictures by Degas today um, showing what seems like an idealized environment. But in fact, often in the back, you'll see men lurking. They were known as the abonnés, mm-hmm. the very powerful men of the jockey club. And they regularly exploited these young women. So um, many of them had very sad stories, even though they were quite accomplished artists. Right. And speaking of Degas, I think there's even a little backstory to 
to his very famous sculpture of the 14-year-old dancer, right? That's right. That famous bronze sculpture is of a young girl. Uh, She was part of a family where I think her sister was also a dancer. But sadly, she was likely um, a victim of the circumstances at the time where she hardly made any money to survive. Many of the dancers were hungry. I mm-hmm. mean, here they were, you know, physically exerting themselves. And this young lady did fall into prostitution as well and probably died a very sad life. Ugh. So, yeah, it's horrible to think of. And so different from the way we view dancers today. Right. And it really is a fact that the majority of ballerinas then and now will never make it to star status. That's right. Or or you know, prima ballerina, which was a term that was kind of more favored in the past. Right. Um, today's top dancers are really generally called principal dancers, if I'm correct. Right. Why this shift in terminology from ballerina to principal dancer? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that ballet culture came up in Great Britain and especially the United States, and we view ourselves as a bit more democratic. (laughs) So the idea of the ballerina, which was a term given to very, very few female dancers, you really had to be at the apex. Um, At one point in the late 19th century in Russia, it is said there were only six ballerinas in all of Russia. Oh, wow. Which is extraordinary. Um, So you can see how limited the term was bandied about then. But today we view... Uh, the hierarchy of the principal, the soloist, and the corps de ballet member. But I think it it erases the difference between male versus female, mm. and one that really, um, I think, asserts a sense of achieving it, not so much through social connections or through whims, but really through technical as well as artistic merit. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the reasons we see that change. In France, they still use the word étoile or star to designate mm. the very top rank. Oh, nice. Yeah. Interesting. I'd like to turn our attention to one of the all-time greats who we were just talking about um, before we started recording, Marie Taglioni. Um, And she really rose to international claim in the early 19th century. I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about her and also her innovations, which helped to shape the future trajectory of ballet as an art form. That's right. I think Marie Taglioni was important in two very um, significant ways. One was the art form itself. Mm -hmm. She was not considered a beautiful woman and had certain physical flaws. Someone told me that she was slightly hunchbacked. And her father, who was a brilliant choreographer, was able to create dance movements that did not distract from that. In fact, uh, really enhanced her physicalness. Um, She was very hardworking and she was a pioneer of the idea of going up on point, the sort of idea of uh, now we think of it as absolutely essential in classical ballet for a female dancer, but it was very rare when she started. And I think the other thing that she did was to raise the respectability of the ballerina. She was very careful in the way she costumed herself. She was discreet. She always wore pearls. She had a floral diadem. Um, and the other thing is that she acted very ladylike off stage. Mm. She made sure her physical depictions, whether in costume or in high fashion, were always done in a very respectable way. So she was able to do something many other ballerinas could not do, which was garner a female audience. Even the young Princess Victoria was a huge fan of hers. And so if members of the royal family could embrace her, it was considered acceptable. So she was a breakaway star, but unusual in yeah. that way. 
and and um, correct me if I'm wrong. The queen perhaps named one of her horses Talioni. She did. Talioni was one of her racehorses, and also there was a stagecoach that ran between cities that was called the Talioni. Um, there was <laughs> fabrics after her famous role, La Sylphide. Many different types. Candies were named after her, and the Russians were especially enamored. Um, there were some balletomans who made a soup out of her shoes and ate it. So, <laughs> so Talioni mania kind of swept through Europe in the 1830s and 40s. Talk about being a mythic yes, figure. Yes, exactly. That's right. <laughs> um, speaking of iconic elements of ballet, I would be very, very surprised if there's a single one of our listeners out there who is not familiar with the garment, which is, of course, quintessentially synonymous with ballet. And I am, of course, talking about the tutu. One thing that I was taken a bit back by when I was reading the exhibition catalog was the somewhat body origins yeah. of this term. So how did this term tutu come about? Um, and, and at its most basic, what is a tutu? Well, a tutu is just the ballerina skirt. It's her costume. Uh, and when it was if you will, invented in the 1830s. Uh, it was um, a word that came from a rather, if you will, coarse background. It's of slang or play on the word cuckoo, which itself is slang for le petit col, which is your behind, basically. Mm -hmm. Ballet audiences were different in the way they were positioned back in those days. The people who were members of the aristocracy or had money were always in what they called the box seats or the rings that, that were on the upper tiers of the opera house. And it was down in the orchestra seats where the more working class people sat, and they could sometimes get a glimpse up the, the ballerina skirt. skirt. Yes, they were <laughs> diaphanous um, mm -hmm. garments. And so sometimes, depending on how she twirled or whatnot, it, you could get a look up up them. And they were also a bit dangerous. Um, they were often starched and had sizing in them, which made them flammable. And with the open gas lights, some of the ballerina skirts caught on fire. And sadly, a number of stars did die that way. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this. Um, we talked to Allison and Matthews David about her book, Fashion Victims. And we kind of went into some of those stories just a little bit. It's very sad. It's very sad. M Marie Levy is. Um, and, and, and yes. And then also right? Emma Levy was one Emma of them. Emma Levy. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. And another light bulb really went off for me um, in the context of Taglioni um, and her ballet costumes because her stage costumes were very much a direct reflection of fashion of the era. And I had never made that connection before. Exactly. In fact, if you look at ballet costumes starting in the Baroque era all the way through, you can almost date when the production uh, was from because they so closely reflected high fashion. This exhibition is the opposite. We wanted to show how fashion for the first time was looking to classical ballet starting in the 1930s. But early on, the ballerina's costume was clearly a modified version of high fashion. And we have the advantage of the skirts going up in the 1830s, so you see a bit of the ankles. So the ballerina's tutu was not too far a departure, right. but it was certainly more filmy. It was made with tulle. And the reason for this, again, was the narrative, the sort of supernatural, romantic, gothic narrative. Uh, the ballerinas were often sylphs or spirits or willies. They were girls risen from the dead. So to evoke this look of a ghost or something supernatural, the sort of gauzy light skirt was a bit of a departure from high fashion. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, another thing, <clears throat> if that set off a light bulb in my head, I have to say it was the shoes that hit me like a ton of bricks. I, 
of course, I'm very well familiar with those little 1830s delicate little slippers with the ribbons that women were wearing at that time. But this eventually morphed into what we think of as the ballet shoe. Absolutely. Um, Dancers already had started to take the heels off of their shoes in the early 19th century. They were really wearing sandals, if you will, and flat shoes. But the high fashion shoe, as you noted, was very lightweight, usually satin, very pretty ribbons. And dancers like Taglioni just darned them or reinforced them to, again, quickly go up on point. They didn't stand there or turn the way they do today. And then over time, they've been um, strengthened. They're made with layers of paper and glue. And um, they're very, very strong. In fact, they sound like pieces of wood when you tap them against the floor. (laughs) So the mainstream fashion press at this time, and you touched on this very briefly, um, was rife with ballet references during the 19th century. How was the cachet of ballet used as a marketing tactic? Well, I think both ballet and fashion benefited by the rise of lithography and the greater distribution of fashion magazines. Now more middle-class people could access them. And the ballet image was so perfect because it really encapsulated the romantic ideal. Mm -hmm. Again, this sort of, if you will, mystical creature. She was somewhat otherworldly. And from what I had read from some dance historians, people would actually take these prints out of the magazines and put them on their walls. Oh, wow. And it was really during the 1830s and 40s. Now, that was the first half of the 19th century. By the second half, the ballerinas, if you will, cachet faded a bit. And you do not see ballet reference anywhere near as much as in the 1830s and 40s again. Uh, right. Period. And, and perhaps that had something to do with the fact that Taglioni passed away in 1840s. And I think you noted in the book that the popularity waned, especially in Paris. Um, but Paris was far from the only epicenter of ballet. Russia had its own um, thriving ballet community and, um, correct me if I'm wrong, a little bit of its own style. And that was really typified by the next great star ballerina that I'd like to talk about, Anna Pavlova. That's right. Um, One of the nice things about ballet is it was becoming already more internationalized and more standardized in the first half of the 19th century. And actually, we have to credit the Italians with Mm. moving ballet and making it more technically exciting. Uh, The Italians were were very well trained, and in fact, the word ballerina that is adopted by the Russians clearly is an Italian word. So early stars like Virginia Zucchi, Pierina Legnani, those types of women came to Russia with outstanding technical skills, and it helped recalibrate what the Russians uh, were doing themselves. So it lifted the technical process. But those women were what they called whalebone ballerinas. They were strong, (laughs) they were sturdy, they did wear corsets, but they did not have the sort of body type we think of today. Anna Pavlova comes along. She's a sickly child. It takes her a little while to get accepted into the Mariinsky, the great training school and company. And she completely redefines what a ballerina looks like. She comes to the West with others, with the Ballet Russe, but then quickly forms her own company, travels the world. And because of so many images of her, that's the image we now think of as the ballerina. Slender, beautifully shaped legged, And highly arched feet, which again were Mm -hmm. not popular back when she started ballet. Yeah, when I was reading about this, I was kind of like, oh, she was kind of like the Kate Moss of the ballet world. All of a sudden, you you see a shift in that ideal ballet body. Good analogy, yes. And she also became one of the first ballerinas to be recognized as a 
fashion icon within Western society. That's right. Would you tell us a little bit about her relationship with fashion and haute couture in particular? I think she turned to some of her older colleagues. One of the most important was Matilda Shashinska, who is somewhat uh, forgotten here in the West, but she was the prima ballerina in Russia at that time. Um, She's most famous now for having been the mistress of... Tsar Nicholas, before he became the Tsar. But she was a very wealthy, well-connected woman. She had a palatial home, and she wore not only beautiful fashion, she had an incredible jewelry Mm, collection. She often draped herself in Fabergé jewels, not only in her private life, but also on the stage. And people said she positively twinkled. Now, Pavlova never had a jewelry collection like that, but she understood the potency of fashion. And I think also learned this when she came to Paris. This was very important in self-promotion. Again, hundreds of photographs of her in her most famous ballet roles were disseminated around the world, but also in the latest fashions. She wore Fortuny, Liberty of London, and we theorize she may have been a patron of Paul Poiret or other couturiers of that level. In fact, your Pochoir book had some imagery that I said, oh, I wonder if there's a connection. (laughs) Well, that leads me into my next question for you, which is, you know, if her international renown kind of kindled the flames of of ballet fandom, um, then the debut of the Ballet Russe in Paris really kind of poured gasoline on this whole dance scene, particularly in terms of this synergy between dance and fashion. That's right. Um, and and we could probably do an entire episode on just this one <laughs> moment in time um, if we really wanted to, and maybe someday we will. But what influence did the aesthetic of the Ballet Russe, this dance company, have on Paris Couture? And who were some of the key players here? Well, the one who is the most famous is Sergei Diaghilev, the great impresario. He was actually very interested in avant-garde art. Mm -hmm. He was not particularly a dance fan, but he did go to the Mariinsky and see the Sleeping Beauty, and he was transformed. He realized what ballet could be at its highest. So he says, all right, I'm going to bring a troupe of the most brilliantly trained dancers, and they were the best dancers in the world at that time. But he also brought avant-garde artists like Boxed, and he would later collaborate with Picasso, top choreographers like Mikhail Fokin, and composers like mm-hmm. Igor Stravinsky. And this, if you will, Gesamtkunstwerk, or total work of art idea, was done and absolutely revolutionized what ballet could be in Europe. The Parisians went crazy. And I think even though Paul Poiret denied the influence, it's very clear that they're modern and exotic ballets. They really did not do full classical productions in the beginning. Just caught their imagination. I think Diana Vreeland summed it up best when she said the Ballet Russe was the only real avant-garde I had ever seen in my life. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, and that shows you the level of impact. And he only lived for 20 years. He died in 1929. And so in a certain way, Ballerina Fashion's Modern Muse is built on the great impact that he made, the subsequent Ballet Russe companies that grew out of this, and the people that he nurtured, uh, fellow Russians as well as others. So the whole ballet culture grew out of uh, what he had done and Anna Pavlova had done. Mm -hmm. Um, When I first started working um, at Special Collections, I was delighted to see that we actually have several of the Ballet Russe programs from their U.S. tours in 1915 and 1916. And you note in the exhibition catalog that English ballet, you say, quote, was heavily indebted to the Ballet Russe, and that their 1921 production of Sleeping Beauty, which you just referenced, was a runaway smash hit. So 
would it be fair to say that during the early 20th century, we start to see a little bit of shift in the epicenters globally where ballet is taking off? Absolutely. Not only because of the ballet roots coming to Paris in 1909, but because of the Russian Revolution. What Russia lost, the West gained. So many of their top performers, and not just that, but the teachers, the people who were ballet writers and critics, as well as composers and choreographers, and artists and people who made costumes— all emigrated to the West. And so out of this comes ballet culture, spearheaded by the British of all countries, Mm -hmm. and then later the United States. And I've always wondered, because Great Britain and America did not have established ballet schools and companies on a national level, like France, Denmark, Russia, whether or not this was one of the reasons why they were so impassioned by this. Um, But just two quick notes. Of course, Uh, Sleeping Beauty. It was a a success by our standards. I think it ran 115 performances, but Diaghilev didn't make money, so he was actually run out of (laughs) London. And keep in mind that the the production happened in London, a city with great theater enthusiasts. So that's one of the reasons he did that. But it inspired, actually, one of the first ballets Friedrich Ashton did in 1926. He loved also the modern productions of the Ballet Russe. But his first ballet was called The Scarlet Scissors or The Tragedy of Fashion. And he actually, <laughs> he stars as Monsieur Duchic, who winds up committing suicide when his work is not well received. But there are all sorts of other ballet references. The editor-in-chief of British Vogue is actually a key figure in the ballet, as is Monsieur Coulthard, uh, Samuel Coulthard, the uh, textile manufacturer. Mm-hmm. He is the Vicomte de Rayonnais. So, oh my gosh. So, and even Charles James's sister is in that production. She was a ballet dancer, and he clearly was in part of the groups where the intellectuals and ballet fans all intermingled in London at the time. That's really amazing. I mean, who doesn't love a little fashion satire? Absolutely. Whether it's in print or whether it's on the stage. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. (laughs) So with this shift and, you know, all of these artists entering life in the West, I'm going to guess that we saw the creation of some new dance companies. Could you give us a brief overview of some of the most influential companies that are starting to emerge at this time? That's right. One was the uh, breaking away and creation of a number of splinter companies from the original Ballet Russe. You had the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, Colonel de Basile's Ballet Russe. Um, and these splinter companies took that form of Russian ballet and those original productions all over the world. Now, the Ballet Russe already toured internationally, but this really was ingrained. The Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo was actually trapped in the United States Mm. during World War II, and so they were the ones who were taking it to cities and places in the country where people had never seen ballet, probably had never heard of it. But the two major companies that grew out of this, in fact, maybe three, were based in London and New York. First is the Sadler-Wells Ballet, which would eventually become the Royal Ballet. And in many ways, they were the, if you will, heirs to the traditions of Russian high classical ballet. Their version of Sleeping Beauty became internationally famous. And then in New York, thanks to George Balanchine and other emigres, we see the creation eventually of the New York City Ballet in 1949 and American Ballet Theater, which again grew out of this uh, culture during World War II. Mm -hmm. I'd like to turn our discussion back to fashion and, and and ballet costume, this 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 symbiotic relationship between the two. Because I think as we go on a little bit, it's going to become abundantly clear that more than a few fashion designers have been 
ballet obsessed, um, one of whom um, may have been Jean Lavin. And I had never made this connection between one of her iconic signature looks, the robe de steel, which may very well have been inspired by ballet costume. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Thanks to scholars like Lynn Garofola, who was a professor emeritus of the dance program at Barnard College, she had actually uh, done some research on John Maynard Keynes, the great uh, economist. He was a huge ballet fan, and even though he was a homosexual, he married Lydia Lopokova, a Russian ballerina, and they apparently had a very nice marriage. But we see that um, the planting of the seeds of these ideas were started in Paris. And Lanvin, as you know, uh, created gowns that were sort of antithetical to the sleek garçon or flapper style, the very modern body type. She had a rather romantic style. And so those 18th century inspired dresses were also nicknamed the Camargo after the great 18th century ballerina, Marie de Camargo. Oh, interesting. So we know for sure. And she was doing ballet costumes at the time. And I've always theorized that the ballet Carnival, which was a hit uh, with the ballet Russe, I think it was a 1910 ballet, had wonderful sort of flouncy 1830-style dresses with cherries printed on them. And we see that, that was the figure Columbine, that Lanvin did a dress called Columbine that also had these sort of circular discs and a bright red bow on the dress. And I've always wondered, could the connection have been that direct? Yeah, and and now that you're now that you mentioned that the Camargo, I think there is a play in Gazette du Monton, which is a dress by her, and it's entitled. That's the title of the play. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that we really can't talk about designers like Lanvin um, or others of her era, including Madeleine Vionnet, without really speaking about the modernization of fashionable dress. And I'm curious if this shift towards comfort and practicality that we're seeing in fashion during the 1920s and the 1930s, does this also play out in a shift in dancers' costumes? We do see this. Um, First of all, rehearsal clothing starts to become less cumbersome. Um, It's interesting if you look at photographs of young dance students in Russia at the turn of the 20th century, they are wearing full skirts. And you certainly see them, for example, in Degas paintings. The dancers always wore a tutu. Mm -hmm. Um, By the 1920s and certainly by the 1930s, they are just wearing leotards and tights. So the emancipation in the classroom and the rehearsal areas are certainly happening. And we're starting to see the very genesis of leotards on stage. 1928, the ballet ode by the Ballet Russe is so revolutionary that the dancers were saying, we felt naked on stage. So we do see this push forward where both are going hand in hand, I think. Right, right. And earlier in the context of Pavlova, we were discussing the shift in this fashionable body type for dancers. Um, But the 1920s is also when we see this shift for this sleek, trim, elongated feminine form extend beyond the realm of the ballerina um, and really into mainstream fashion. Um, and, And this is plainly evidenced if you look at fashion magazines from the 1920s and the 1930s, where also, perhaps not by happenstance, we also see increasing references to ballet. And professional ballerinas were now actually moonlighting as fashion models. Uh, You know, how far have we come from, you know, the the petite rats, the corps de ballet girls who were forced into prostitution because they had no other option, to now all of a sudden see ballerinas really glorified in print as the feminine ideal. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this kind of like narrative arc in terms of progress and, and the new modern woman. I think timing is so important. I think every point you've made um, 
April is so right. We see a huge shift, you know, the suffragette movement, technology is allowing for this. Many fashion historians have done brilliant research in this area. I would say also that one thing to keep in mind is the rise of the female couturier and the American uh, designer. They now in both countries are seeing the rise of women dominating. Mm -hmm. The big couture names are often women. Same thing here. And I'm wondering if also the demographic shift, because so many men died during World War I, there was a sort of void and a vacuum in many of these areas. The bearded couturier is now gone. And with the women coming in and modernists like Vionnet and Chanel leading the pack in Paris, and then you have everybody, the Claire McCardell is starting to become a designer, but also Elizabeth Hawes, many progressive women are now looking at a more streamlined uh, look, mm-hmm. not on fashion, but also the body. Mm-hmm. If you want to be able to play sports and do this, you can't run around in a corset. And uh, that's generally the sort of the idea. But ballet clearly mirrors this. And one of the major ballerinas, aside from Pavlova, is Filia Dubrovska, who is not only long-limbed and slender, she was very tall. And when she was asked to take over a role in Les Biches, one of the modern ballets of the mid-20s, she couldn't wear the costume because she was so much taller than the original (laughs) ballerina for whom the role was created. And Diaghilev said, well, just go to Chanel. She'll make something up for you. I would love to be in that situation. (laughs) But you're absolutely right. The body types change. And as a result, the ballerina is now within one generation, becomes a respected artist, and she is now an idealized beauty. And also, they are very inexpensive. So what what better than to take the most beautiful ballerinas and use them as models? Mm -hmm. They also know how to move in front of a camera very naturally. So a number of them that I had talked to and had read about uh, made that comment that fashion editors approached them and said, why don't you model for us? Yeah. And I was not at all familiar with Sono Asato before I started this episode. And now I'm officially obsessed and smitten by her. She is breathtakingly beautiful. And she has a really compelling story. And was actually one of the ballerinas most frequently seen in the pages of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. Might you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, this is an incredible story. She's Japanese-American. Her father was interned during World War II, and she was actually denied a visa because of the anti-Japanese sentiment. She was very young when she started in classical ballet, only 14. She becomes, at that time, the youngest member of the company, travels around, and she eventually transfers over to Broadway and becomes a huge star. But as you noted, She was exceptionally beautiful and was the most popular, among the most popular ballerinas featured as models during the late 30s and all during World War II. I was so struck by that. So I asked a number of people and they said, Patricia, you don't understand how beautiful she was. She was beautiful in a photograph. She was even more beautiful in real life. (laughs) And one of my great privileges um, was, you know, has been getting to speak to some of the dancers. And I did talk to her in the summer of 2017 when she was 98 years old, about a year before she died. Um, And she confirmed, she said, yeah, they would approach us and we would do it for free just to have our name uh, printed in the magazine. Um, But I did ask her also, I said, so many of the poses you have are so natural, it looks like you're doing it yourself. And she said, yeah, they were not directed by the photographer, which again gave me insight into this relationship between fashion dance and the ballerina herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and while we're on this topic, I'd I'd like to touch briefly on the subject of racial diversity in ballet. Um, Fontaine, Margot Fontaine, was part Brazilian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maria Tallchief was Native American on her father's side. And you actually say in the catalog, I'm quoting you, you say, though ballet was overwhelmingly populated by Europeans, it was just progressive enough to include those of different backgrounds. 
By comparison, fashion publications did not feature non-white models until the 1960s. So Sono may have been the exception to this rule here, but broadly speaking, what was the state of race relations within ballet during the early to mid-20th century? I think we have Russia to credit Uh, for a little bit of this. Now, remember, Russia's an enormous country. It's 11 time zones, and they have so many different races under their um, larger empire and then what became the Soviet Union. You know, during the Soviet era, they had to take at least two students from every one of the separate Soviet states into the major dance schools. interesting. So people like Rudolf Nureyev, who is a Muslim Tartar, is an example of the kind of diversity that you would see, different racial groups, different religious groups. But Again, aside from African-Americans who really suffered terribly under the restrictions and limitations of ballet training, we saw the rise not only of Maria Tallchief, but of what they called the Five Moons, the five American Indian ballerinas that rose to international prominence during the mid-century. And they were all from Oklahoma, (laughs) amazingly enough, even though they all didn't train there. And also Latina ballerinas, Alicia Alonso and Lupe Serrano. And what's interesting is that Sona Osato and another dancer, Nini Tilad, were both Eurasian Uh, dancers who modeled. So I think, though, the fashion magazines allowed them in because they were dancers, not especially models. You didn't see professional Asian models really at that time. But I think it did not dispel the kind of racism that early African-American women and men had to deal with. I mean, they had their own ballet, like the Negro Ballet was formed. But people like... um, Raven Wilkinson and Janet Collins, who eventually became the prima ballerina of the Metropolitan Opera Ballet, many of these dancers had very curtailed careers or had to go to Europe. Um, It really wasn't until the Dance Theater of Harlem will you see the establishment of a company that is here and became world-recognized and could really give dancers long and really profound careers in, in ballet. Yeah. So... I'd like to bring us back to this intersection of ballet and fashion um, and discuss a few um, interesting crossovers because our listeners may recall from our recent um, fashion and film series, we did a two-parter on that. Uh, We did discuss Gilbert Adrian, of course, who started out in Hollywood as a costume designer under the studio system and then later launched his own fashion line, Adrian Originals. So Patricia, who was Barbara Karinska, and I'm certain you know where I'm going (laughs) with this Adrian reference. Yes. Um, You know, the very best of them. Uh, Barbara Karinska was a Ukrainian-born costumier and couturier, very much like a Gilbert Adrian or Bernard Newman, some of these other major um, Hollywood uh, individuals who also became very celebrated fashion designers. Karinska was an amazing figure because she initially, uh, when she came to the West, worked with Cecil Beaton and Christian Berard. She didn't really design the costumes, but she made them. But I think she was starting to put her own little innovations in there, like bias-cut satin, Mm. really heavy, like Duchesse satin, which I had never heard of. We know that Obviously, Vionnet pioneered the idea uh, of using things like crepes and stuff, but to do it with heavy material, I hadn't heard. And she did this to give the dancers greater flexibility in their torsos. But I also wondered if she was the one who pioneered the idea of different colors and layers of tulle to give greater dimension to the tutu, because we see many other um, couturiers picking up this idea. Charles James. Absolutely. She does this after she does the costumes for Cotillon, the beautiful ballet that Balanchine creates in 1932. But Karinska then goes on to come to the United States, and she actually opens her own couture house for a while, Mm -hmm. but eventually goes back into creating costumes. And most celebrated amongst them are the ones she did 
with George Balanchine at the New York City Ballet. In fact, the first things you see when you come into the exhibition are her Sugar Plum Fairy uh, (laughs) costume, as well as the three magnificent Jules costumes uh, that she did for his 1967 masterpiece, where you see emeralds, diamonds, and rubies. And this idea of combining not just costume and fashion, but even jewelry to this degree, she had a very particular talent, um, aesthetic talent as well as technical talent. Mm-hmm. And um, we we just touched on Charles James very briefly, but he was not the only um, fashion designer who was kind of um, looking to the ballet for inspiration. Um, right. Also Coco Chanel, Absolutely. who was really good friends with um, Christian Berard or Bebe. Yes. Um, we see some direct influences of some of his designs in her work as well. Exactly. Um, she was also a supporter of the Ballet Russe. She was friends with Sergei Diaghilev and underwrote or helped support them financially. But certainly, Berard, I've always theorized, did a lot to help recalibrate Chanel's look. Um, she, like many couturiers, embraced the Romantic movement, early mid-1930s, and she went from making, of course, very sleek, functional clothes in the 20s to doing these highly romantic tulle ball gowns. And next to the wonderful Cotillon costumes covered with stars, we found a piece of hers done in the 30s, blue tulle, again, covered with stars, and very romantic. And I've always wondered whether or not there was this connection, whether direct or indirect, something planted subliminally in her. Yeah. And and not only Chanel, the exhibition um, features a ton of designers who were, again, drawing their inspiration from the ballet stage, uh, Balmain in That's particular. Right. Yes. Do you have any favorite pieces in the exhibition that you would like to talk about? Well, I think Balmain is so important. Um, it's interesting, April, that in the several books about him, almost nothing about the ballet is mentioned, but we know he was doing costumes for fancy dress balls, and we know that he did some for ballet productions. It's still a little unclear, but I found his clothes to be the most theatrical and balletic inspired, covered with feathers, really obvious things like this pink satin one that has a corset on it, Um, and even ones where you have knit sweaters with chiffon skirts that are referencing the more informal ballet kind of costume. But I think the big one was also Dior. He was looking at the black Swan. Clearly, he made at least two versions of that particular costume, and he dressed many of the great ballerinas. That seemed to be the the favorite amongst them. And of course, American designers a little later on, and even Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Cardin, who were greatly inspired by ballet. Um, And and that kind of leads into, you said um, that he dressed many of the great ballerinas. All of a sudden, this Well, not really all of a sudden. It took a while. But this elevated status of the ballerina um, and and her increasing celebrity status was not lost on fashion purveyors. And and many of them really looked to capitalize on dressing them for international tours as as a marketing tactic for their own work. Um, Would you tell us a little bit about this? Yes, it was kind of a transatlantic phenomenon. When the British first brought the Sadler Wells Ballet to New York in 1949, it was a huge hit. And Margot Fontaine was their star. She got 48 curtain calls, unheard of today, when she danced the lead role, Princess Aurora in The Sleeping Beauty. Now, the British textile and clothing industry said, you know what, we know this is going to be successful. Let's take Fontaine and a few of the other female leads like Moira Shira, Pamela May, um, some of the other ballerinas, and dress them. So the Incorporated Society of London Fashion Designers, <laughs> I guess their version of the CFDA, yeah. um, decided to dress the ballerinas and did so beautifully. So their traveling costumes, their evening clothes were all done and publicized everywhere. In fact, Cecil Beaton photographed Fontaine for Vogue magazine in mm-hmm. one of the pieces. But I think the big thing is that 
these ballerinas love Dior. Right. And Fontaine, although she was the epitome of British dancing, restrained style, she was a national hero, um, she loved Paris and loved couture. And thanks to Roland Petit, um, she was introduced to Dior very early on. And because she was so slender, she could actually wear the samples. Oh, nice. So we know that the perhaps the first Dior she ever bought from his first collection is in the exhibition, and then subsequent pieces that she wore in the 50s. But I think her story is especially telling because although many dancers like the great Morishira wears Jacques Fath couture gowns in the Red Shoes movie, which was an international hit, Fontaine carried this over. She thought she was going to retire in the late 50s. She said, you know, 1959, I'm going to turn 40, probably time to hang up my point shoes. But then soon thereafter, with about a year and a half um, Rudolf Nureyev defects. And Nanette de Valois, who's the director of the Royal Ballet, says, no, 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 you will be dancing with Nureyev. <sighs> she was very nervous. Here she is in her 40s. He's in his mid-20s. She said, this is going to look a little ridiculous. But they turn out to be the great dance partnership of all time. And something happens to her stylistically. She embraces a very youthful look. Mm. Dior has passed away, and she turns to his heir, Yves Saint Laurent, and he dresses her throughout the 1960s. And in 1965, she actually becomes a member of the best dress list. So Fontaine understood, probably more than any ballerina of the mid-century, how important your offstage persona is. Mm -hmm. And Nureyev likewise dressed in a highly fashionable way, a little flamboyant, but you knew you were looking at a star, whether he was walking down the street right, or anywhere right. else. I think I remember a couple images of him wearing Pierre Cardin Absolutely. From, from, that, Absolutely. from that era. Um, and of course, we're talking about the mid-century right. period here. Um, right. This is also the same time when American fashion was really coming into its own. And I'm not going to dwell on the how and why <laughs> about this because we have talked about it so many different times right. on the show. I'm right. sure our regular listeners are very well familiar with this tale now. Um, but I'd like to talk about this particular moment um, where there begins to be the rise of the American ready-to-wear and the influence of dancewear on American designers, many of whom were women. Yes. Um, what, what, what about dancewear was appealing to these designers and also um, the buying public alike? I think, obviously, during World War II, we were cut off from Paris. Mm -hmm. So this sort of high fashion is... Um, no longer available. And I think during the war too, with shortages and many women working outside of the home, you needed more functional clothing. This has already been part of the American DNA. And we had a very large, as you know, um, ready-to-wear industry. We were pioneers in this area. But I think dance helped and formed in a couple of ways. First of all, this is the era when the flat ballet slipper is born. Diana Vrila pioneers the idea already in 1941, says, you don't need to buy shoes, wear a ballet slipper and put some ribbons on it. <laughs> And in 1942, according to what I've read, uh, Claire McArdle mm -hmm. can't get regular shoes, so she goes to Capizio, which is a celebrated ballet shoemaker. There are no wartime restrictions on ballet shoes, so she grabs a bunch and puts them on her dresses, and it led to an eventual collaboration between the two. And Capizio takes off. They actually go into the ready-to-wear uh, street shoe manufacturing arena. They win the Cody Award. They're on the cover of Vogue. So this whole genesis with flat functional footwear started then. But the leotard also comes in right. April. And amongst many designers, uh, Mildred Oreck was a pioneer also, one of this cadre of American women. And she was asked to illustrate leotards in 1943 for a spread in Harper's Bazaar magazine because they said, look, the leotard is your friend. You may not know what it is, but you'll want it in your wardrobe. You can look futuristic like 
Flash Gordon, but it also gives you a reference to the ballerina's rehearsal clothing. They make specific reference to ballet. So leotards, tights can be used as a base layer Mm -hmm. under which you can put wrap skirts or a wrap dress or a popover dress, something like that. So it was so new, though, I think the editors felt the need to kind of explain what a leotard was. Right. So swimwear, activewear, it's all, you see this fluid connection between everything right. at that time. And also a lot of knitwear in, in in these ready-to-wear fashions Absolutely. of this exact same era. Um, so in the 1960s and the 1970s, we see a little bit of a transition in terms of ballet stage costume. Um, sometimes away from the more formal styles. And we start to see leotards only being worn on stage increasingly. And this is also the same time when you we see the leotard become even more co-opted by high fashion. Do you think this is a coincidence? No, I don't think so. You know, Balanchine uh, really was a pioneer. He started to produce ballets in leotards. In the beginning, it was sometimes because he didn't have the money to buy nicer costumes. But eventually, he realized because his choreography was faster, it really um, accentuated the dancer's line, it was better to wear them in leotards. So both the men and the women were wearing them. And they were called black and white ballets Mm -hmm. because of the black leotards and pink or light tights, as well as uh, leotard ballets. So that's not a coincidence. And then technology, which you have always talked about, the new materials like lycra and stretch materials, allow leotards to be made more readily and easily. Um, And so we suddenly see an explosion during the 1960s and 70s. Dance skin, which was exclusively for dancewear, suddenly becomes clothes made to transition from the ballet studio to the street to the disco. So you're going back and forth between different dance forms. Yeah. And they even had an advertising campaign that was like, Danskin, not just for dancing. That's right. <laughs> the That was very clever. And their designer, Bonnie August, who's kind of been forgotten, actually won a Cody Award also for her innovations. And a dancer, a young soloist with American Ballet Theater, was actually one of her advisors. So oh, she turned nice. to classical ballet for that. Yeah. And there are more than a few big names in fashion that our um, audience will know that have embraced the leotard, now kind of renaming it the bodysuit. Yes? Exactly. That's right. Um, I can think of, let's see, well, I think you talked about Alaya in the book and that's also right. Donna Karen. That's right. And was playing with that layering look. There's no question because I think it's interesting, you know, Donna Karen was trying to make a new uniform for the working woman, especially those working in the corporate environment, um, to give you something that was a little bit a step away from sort of an adaptation of a man's suit, mm-hmm. sexier but also powerful. And Aliyah was just full-blown high fashion. But in both cases, the leotard or bodysuit becomes the perfect underlayer for this. But again, we see this transition because we are now seeing greater diversity um, within the fashion industry. Black dancers are also mirroring the kind of black models and black fashion designers that are coming out. So again, this idea of using dance as a unifying element Mm -hmm. is really important. And remember that the 1970s was the really golden age of dance in America. Modern dance, many different non-Western dance forms, classical ballet, as well as popular social dance like disco. Everybody was dancing despite, I guess, (laughs) rising crime rates and the fact that the city was, you know, in financial crisis and we had blackouts and all sorts of things. It was an incredibly vibrant period. Speaking of big names and designers in in this intersection of dance, I want to mention an associated exhibition that's up at the museum right now. Um, And these are actually costumes from the New York City Ballet. Wondering if you can tell us why these costumes in particular are especially significant. Well, it's been an interesting trend recently where I think 
fashion is just hot everywhere. Let's mm-hmm. face it, there are more fashion exhibitions in museums than ever. And what better art form than dance to embrace this phenomenon? So I think it was starting in 2012, Sarah Jessica Parker, who was on the board of the New York City Ballet, said, why don't we do our fall fashion gala around a fashion theme? Well, commissioned young choreographers to work with a a designer, established fashion designer, and then we'll wed this together. And it's been incredibly successful. Uh, The person who oversees all of this has been sort of my partner in crime here with this exhibition, (laughs) uh, the great Mark Happel. He's the director of the New York City Ballet Costume uh, Department. And he not only helps build these costumes, he is really the collaborator between all the entities, between the choreographers, the dancers, as well as the designers. And Mark himself is a designer in his own right. But we felt, what a great way to celebrate this, because although um, the exhibition focuses on a very narrow time period, and it's very much about how high fashion has adapted classical ballet, why not show something more contemporary? And so the New York City Ballet, the entire company was so wonderful and flexible, they let us put some of their brilliant collaborations right in our lobby. And who are a few of the collaborators, if I may ask? Well, we see people like Dries Van Noten. We see Sarah Burton of uh, Alexander McQueen. Uh, We see uh, people like Virgil Abloh. So it runs the gamut between traditional established European designers and other uh, younger, newer names. Yeah. And you can check that out when you come visit Ballerina. Exactly. You don't even have to come in. You can see them from the street. (laughs) Um, We are almost out of time today, Patricia. Is there anything that we missed in particular that you wanted to touch on briefly? I just really wanted to thank the ballerinas themselves who have been so supportive through this process. Of course, getting to meet Sono Sato was great, but dancers such as Virginia Johnson and Deborah Austin, who were part of our programming, we did one on pioneering black ballerinas. Mm -hmm. Um, They've also contributed to the exhibition. Carol Devay Harding, who was with the company, she's now on our Couture Council, has been tremendously supportive. And then also Mimi Paul and Joy Williams-Brown. They were ballet dancers who began their careers with George Balanchine. And having them speak to me about this amazing time period is a dream come true and has been so inspirational. Thank you so much. I think any of our listeners who want to come check out Ballerina are also going to be inspired like you were. Um, and, And we really, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much, April. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your exhibition and the companion book, which covers more than 300 years of ballet history. I am so excited to get my hands on that book if I can't actually see the exhibit in person. April, as you know, I'm a huge fan of ballet. My favorite activity while studying at FIT was to attend performances at the New York City Ballet at Lincoln Center, Um, just one of the many, many companies in New York. And there's just something so magical and supremely elegant about the ballerina. Uh, I highly suggest following Misty Copeland and Isabella Boyston. Um, Boystone, I apologize if I I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but um, follow her on IG for this daily fix of all things ballet. Isabella is is constantly posting her rehearsals and it's just really refreshing and beautiful reminder on the daily from her and Misty. And I also just want to suggest a few flicks for our listeners, Center Stage and The Red Shoes. Have you ever seen The Red Shoes, April? I have. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I've read about it, heard about it for years. 1948 film about this ballerina. She's torn between her love for a man and her love for ballet. And there is this epic quasi-sci-fi fantasy bit in the middle. I don't know how else to explain it. (laughs) (laughs) 
You can find it on YouTube. I'm also going to post a link in the episode description so you can check it out because it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and and just a little bit more about the exhibition. Um, you can check out images from the exhibition online since no one can see it in person at the particular moment. But the show features so, so many beautiful fashions that were inspired by the ballet world um, from the designers who drew inspiration from the stage to the ballerinas who actually wore their creations. You know, Cass, this this pas de deux between fashion and ballet has really been an ongoing love affair for years and years and years. And there's this really amazing image, which I'm going to post on Instagram, that I think encapsulates this relationship. Um, it's a black and white cover of Vogue from December 11th, 1909. And on the cover, there's a ballerina, um, a photograph of her. She's on full point. Her arms are really fully extended horizontally straight from her shoulder line. And she's wearing that classic ballet costume, you know, the satin point shoes. She has on tights. She has on a bodice, which appears to be heavily corseted. But the best part Well, the best part is her tutu because it extends to just below her knee, but in the way that she's positioned, the stiffness of the tutu forces the back of it up so it's rising to just below her ears. I mean, it's like this really lovely sublime image. And not to mention that it really sums up fashion's infatuation with the ballerina mystique. The ballerina now celebrated on the cover of one of the world's most prestigious fashion magazines in 1909, when only 50 years previous, many professional ballet dancers were paid so little that they had no choice but to enter a life of prostitution on the side. And and there's no denying that the life of women who preceded us came with different struggles and complications than the ones that we may be experiencing now. And this is a hard moment for us now, for sure. But Cass, my hope is that born out of all of this, we just might find the courage to enact the necessary and social and environmental changes that are long overdue. And on that note, dress listeners, that does it for us this week. We hope you are all happy, healthy, and safe. And even if getting dressed for no one else but yourself and immediate family, perhaps you will consider adding a little bit of ballerina chic into your ensemble next time you get dressed. And April and I just want to extend a special thank you to everyone out there working on the front lines of this pandemic around the world. That includes thousands of tireless nurses and doctors and other hospital staff, but also people like my sister Haley, special shout out. She's a communicable disease epidemiologist in Colorado, and she's been working around the clock to tackle this thing head on. You know, all the grocery store workers, teachers, so, so many people. So thank you all for doing what you do. Yes, thank you so much for keeping us all healthy and safe. Dress listeners, please join us on Thursday for our mini-sodes where we keep you up to date on all things happening in the world of fashion history and or answer your listener questions. And we've been getting some great listener questions recently, Cass. So please, everyone out there, keep them coming our way. You can submit a question by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or sending us a direct message on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And last, but certainly never, ever least, thank you to Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, our producers at iHeartRadio. And thank you to all of our listeners for all the love that you've been sending us recently. Catch you Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.